0: The making of a detective contains descriptions of violence and graphic content and is not suitable for everyone.
1: Well, I said, whoever killed this woman hated her because I said there was a viciousness about the assault.
0: Where where the murder happened was in the bedroom, which is the very last room of the house.
2: It's not a place I go to. um, I, I... I, I tend not to think too much about it.
0: It was a, a violent robbery. Why go to the extreme of murdering the person?
2: Walking by the hall, like y- you know what's down, just like you're, you're talking six or eight foot away on the floor.
0: We just feel it's someone she would have known, or someone she could have identified. It's, it's
2: just, it's not a, it, it doesn't, it's not a nice place to, to, to dwell in. So I, I tend not to.
0: Welcome to The Making of a Detective, The Cases of Pat Mary, brought to you by The Irish Sun. I'm your host, Ian Doyle, and over the next five weeks, I'll be telling the story of five of Ireland's most notorious murder cases, and the man who once solved them. This story, Pat's story, spans three decades, stretching all over Ireland, and even abroad, From Navin to Majorca, to New York City, follow along as we share the dramatic details of each case and how they shaped Pat into one of Ireland's greatest detectives. Helping to tell these stories, I'll be joined for analysis by crime editor Stephen Breed, who's written extensively on these cases in The Irish Sun. Long curly hair and thin in stature. Pat Murray was just a boy on his first failed attempt to join the Guardie.
1: There was a Sergeant Mac Phillips, there and I looked for an application form and he took me into his office and he was a big cut of a man, a big strong chest and a big man and he grabbed me by the shoulder and he shook me and he says, uh, you're too young anyway. That's firstly, he says, and number two, he says, you're too skinny. You want to go and put a bit of
0: meat on your bones like, you know, come back when you're 18 or whatever. Growing up, Pat Mary always wanted to be a guard. It was something he'd fantasise about over and over again as a child. Needless to say, Sergeant McPhillips' aversion to him joining the force was a bit of a setback. After being refused from the force, Pat spent a number of years working in Navan Carpets and Union Camp, which was a packaging and manufacturing plant. It wasn't the excitement he had once dreamed of, but it was a living. Then, Seven years later, Pat got a second chance. The Guardie were looking for new recruits. And this time, Sergeant McPhillips wasn't there to object.
1: So I was delighted, I was over the moon. Like, this was a big thing now, going to Temple Moor, like, the train. I remember uh, it was the 14th of August, 1985, and my father and mother drove me down with my aunt to the gates of Temple Moor.
0: Pat's parents had to leave him at the gates and say goodbye for now. As much as he wanted to be a guard, his first impressions of the college were mixed.
1: We got not as much a talk, but a shouting at by uh, some sergeant. I guess that was his function in life to try and rattle us. Yeah, we'll make men out of you and now if your mummies behind and all this type of jazz. I remember he was shouting so much and he he was shouting at one fellow. He says, no, I'll make a man out of you. The
0: poor guy, I remember him, collapsed. He fainted on, on the ground like, you know. Over the next six months, Pat progressed in Templemore. Not necessarily excelling, but certainly getting by. But it was clear the Gardaí and its rather archaic training regime wasn't for everyone.
1: Two of the guys now had nervous breakdowns down there because of, I think, the pressure of studying got to them. Plus, there was a degree of bullying and that type of carry-on by classmates that went on. And it's a sad reflection, a sad thing to see, like, you know.
0: After all the years of wanting and wishing, Pat's first real experience in the field was underwhelming, if not concerning. He was stationed at Donnybrook Garda Station, where his main duty was guarding the British Embassy.
1: We passed out in January 1986, and some of those guys I haven't seen since. There was no glory in it. You're standing outside an embassy. People with any little bit of pull or being looked after, or their families were well in, got more cushy stations. And I know one guy... (laughs) got a station, his family home backed on to the back of the station. So, like, that's what you were dealing with, like, you know. But look, I was sent to Danny Brooks, nothing I could do about it, and that was it. If your shift was to go in and stand outside the British Embassy and walk, let's say, 20 yards back and forth and stand there like a cardboard cutout, you get a bit disheartened. And I did get disheartened because I was thinking about the job that I was doing and that I had liked I remember one night, like so fed up, like at four o'clock in the morning, there wasn't a sinner around, there was nothing, there wasn't even a fox, there was nothing. And I went out and I lay in the middle of the road and I looked up at the sky and I spread myself out like a crucifix. like. And I was just looking up at the sky and I said, there has to be more to life than this. I remember doing that, like, you know, and I said to myself, what are you at? It was sort of a, a development of how I was feeling inside. like
0: On the verge of quitting the guards, Pat asked himself the same question each night.
1: Did I make the right choice? But uh, I put in for a transfer.
0: A transfer is what Pat got. Posted to Blanchardstown Garda Station, Pat would be entering the field again. But this time for real. This was the moment Pat Murray's career, and in many ways life, took off.
2: Pat was born to be a guard. Like He's just a guard. Like Even though he's retired now, Pat is just a guard. So he's just 100%, 1000% professional. Um, he makes no apologies for it.
0: That's the voice of Paul Calloway, a man Pat would get to know very well while working on the case that's the focus of this episode. The murder in question shocked the country to its core and is still remembered today Few deaths in Ireland have been as high profile or had as many twists and turns as the murder of Rachel Cowley and the public circus that followed. We'll return to Pat's time at Blanchardstown Garda Station in a later episode, but for now, let's jump forward to 2004, the year of Rachel Cowley's death, when Pat was working in Balbriggan Garda Station under a new title, Detective Sergeant Pat Murray.
1: I worked there with a couple of detectives and plainclothes members and Balbriggan District covered Garristown, Skerries, Rush and Lusk, which was a big area, a big country area too, and the biggish towns. So there was plenty of crime, there was plenty to do, and uh, I took up trying to solve a lot of these crimes. Robberies and burglaries were the main stay of the crime in Balbriggan District. We had no murders
0: there in years or anything. In the 17 years since graduating from Templemore College, Pat's career had progressed leaps and bounds. He worked on some high-profile cases, but few were as impactful as this. This season, on the making of a detective.
2: For the next month, every house we went into where there was a woman of a certain age, they all said to us, and God love me dad, he was only coming round, they all said it. He did it, he did it, he did it. Before he left the station, he turned around to me,
1: put his thumb up and he said, I see you, Pat, like, you know, as if to say, F you,
0: you you can't get me. In April 1997, Rachel Callaghan, a bright, young, fair-haired legal secretary from Dublin, married Joe O'Reilly, a computer operations manager, one year her senior. Joe came from a broken home. His parents had separated when he was younger, and his father moved to the UK, where he didn't get to see him as often as he'd have liked. Joe's best man at the wedding was his brother Derek, and Rachel's bridesmaid was her loyal and devoted best friend, Jackie Connor. As one of five adopted children, Rachel's family unit wouldn't have been seen as a conventional one. But her parents, Rose and Jim, nurtured a house that was full of love for their children. Something that's evident to this day. Paul, Rachel's older brother, describes his memories of her growing up.
2: She was full of life. You know, she was born to live, rather. You know, some people, it takes them a while to get going in life. Like, from day one, Rachel was just, she was just like a rocket, you know. She just took off, and there was no obstacles in life for her. If she came up against something, She would just get over it. She'd work her way around it, do something, but she'd get over it.
0: As a happily married couple, Rachel and Joe had two young boys, Luke and Adam, and moved from their home in Santry to a bungalow in Baldara, the Knoll, County Dublin, about 20 kilometres south of Detective Mary's new posting.
2: No matter where Rach went, the two kids were always with her, so she brought them everywhere with her. They were two very happy kids, so... I think she was born to be a mother, like, the kids were never in her way, you know, she she would fit her life around what the two kids needed. She just loved them being part of her, and she loved being in their lives, and she loved them being in her life.
0: According to Paul, Rachel was someone you'd remember for the everyday type of interactions.
2: Like, she'd come into the gas she'd give you a hug, and... She was always positive, always happy. She just, she had a nice way about her, you know. Life never kind of got her down now, and I'm sure it did, but we never got to see a lot of that. Like She always had a sunny side out, sort of, and, and it would sort of rub off on you. Like, when you'd meet her, you'd, you'd feel better afterwards.
0: Rachel and Joe lived an ordinary enough life. They had a small but close circle of mutual friends. Both were really into their sport, Namely, softball, in which the pair played together and individually, meeting plenty of friends along the way. Joe began working for Viacom, an outdoor advertising firm, and to try and bring in some extra household
2: cash, Rachel got
0: a job as a Tupperware and Avon representative.
2: Rachel seemed very happy. Um, she was mad about him. They seemed to be a good match. The two of them were tall. They were into the same sports. Um, they seem to have a very happy, normal kind of existence together.
0: The Callaly family were, and still are, an extremely tight-knit group. Many of the boys, including Paul and his father Jim, worked together in a plumbing business, where Paul still works today. On the 4th of October 2004, a group of them are gathered in their
2: parents' house. Myself, Deck and Anthony were actually doing a bit of maintenance on my dad's house that day. It was a real autumnal day. like The sun was out, but like it was cool enough. Um, we were doing a bit of painting, actually, in his house. And mum made a fry-up for the lot of us. And she was just in the process. We'd all just come into the kitchen. She was just finishing off the eggs, I think. And the first call came in. And um, God love her, she obviously got an instinct. Like at the start, you know, you know, the call was that Rachel didn't pick up the kids, which like, it was very, 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 very unusual to the point where it was hard to believe she would have forgot to pick them up. Um, So like we were in the kitchen and we were trying to calm him out a little bit. Um, She just had an instinct now Moments later, in the midst of panic, another call comes true from Joe. He sort of intimated that he'd go pick the kids up if, if we could kind of check on the house kind of thing. My mad just immediately then just dropped everything and jumped in the car and drove, drove out to the house. The
1: 4th of October 2004, at lunchtime, I was sitting at my desk after finishing the sandwich and having a cup of tea. I don't think I ever in my career took an hour's break for my lunch or took a, a, a coffee morning or anything like that. It's just the way I was and I was quite happy to do that. I just finished my sandwich and that and one of the guys came and said, I think there's a burglary in progress in the Knoll. And once you hear burglary in progress, you get the distinct impression that whoever rang it in or whatever could see it's in progress. The chances of catching them was high because they're probably not known they've been reported.
0: Without wasting any time, Pack grabs the keys of his Ford Mondeo and heads on his way.
1: And I remember going to Hall, and uh, there was conflicting reports coming in on the radio. Now, it was obvious there was someone at the scene and they came in this woman has been hurt. Another message came in, something like, you know, it looks like a burglary gone wrong. And uh, I was making my way to the knoll to see could I intercept any car. or you'd, you'd know criminals, like, you'd know them, like, you'd sniff them out, like. Then it came in, this, this woman appears to be dead. And I said, my God, straight to the scene, I need to get straight to the scene.
0: Pat pulls up to the bungalow in Baldara and speaks to two guards cordoning off the front of the house.
1: They said the woman, she's dead in there, it looks like a burglary or... Wherever, like in this. It's very important now that you preserve the same property. And one is stay at the gate and there's nobody in whatsoever. Take your notebook out and make a note of every car that passes the make, model, and reg number, what they're wearing, everything about them. Take as much detail in your notebook as you possibly can about everything and everyone around and
2: that. When my mother rang back originally to say she thought Rachel was dead, um, obviously we just left, there and myself and my dad just drove out. Um, we arrived at the house, Rachel's house, even though there was a front door, everyone went in the back way, and went around the back, in through the kitchen, into the hall, Rachel Godlover was down to the right in her bedroom, and um, just to the left then was a sitting room, and we just walked in there.
1: I went around the back of the house, and my superintendent was there. There was a lot of noise coming from inside the house, inside in the kitchen, and the noise was people crying and wailing and distinct cry of grief like from the people inside like you know I said to the super I have to get these people out like to preserve the scene and he says fair enough so I went in and I spoke to the family which was Rose and uh, Jim and there was some of the other family there Mr Caldy Jim came up to me and I just said look I need to get you out of the
0: house here because we have to preserve the scene here to this day, Pat can't fully describe what he saw at that crime scene, or the pain the Callaly family went through in that moment.
1: But you'd have to witness it to understand it. Like, but the grief that that man was going through—the the pure hurt and pain—and he was shouting at me like, "That's my daughter down there. She's dead. That's my daughter down there." And he was pointing his finger like, and as if blaming me. Like his grief was was really raw, like I'll never forget it, you know.
0: Pat did his best to try and control the situation. And most importantly, preserve the scene.
1: And at that stage, an ambulance had arrived just down from the gate. And I said, we best to go down towards the ambulance. And they did. They went down to the ambulance and the ambulance staff were going to tend to them.
0: Pat went to the back door. Where his superintendent Tom Gallagher, a straight-to-the-point Limerick man, was waiting for him.
1: And he said, "There's a woman dead in there." He said, "Tell me what you see." And uh, I was carrying the back
0: of the detective, cars of white suits and protective clothing, but that on came in,
1: went into the house, had a look into the kitchen.
0: The first thing he noticed was that the curtains were drawn.
1: Maybe, maybe not unusual. Well, what was unusual was the table was overturned, like the kitchen table, like it was not flat, but just like as if it turned over. Over the years, I had gone to hundreds, if not thousands, of burglaries. And I knew exactly when a burglary is a burglary. You know, a burglar doesn't do that type of thing. Why would he overturn a table, like, you know? Then there was kitchen drawers pulled open and you could see knives and forks and all that, and the presses, cups and saucers and all that. Burglars don't do that type of thing, like. And I looked in the room to my left and there was a cabinet where there was a telly and under the cabinet there were DVDs. They were pulled out and scattered round. Burglar doesn't do that.
0: Pat made his way down the corridor towards the last bedroom on the left, not knowing what sort of scene awaited him.
1: I seen Rachel, her head was to the left. She was lying on the saddleboard and her feet were and her body were into the room. Now, there was a lot of blood. Uh, but uh, i always remember her, her head was like a beetroot. It was so much red and blood, and you couldn't see her face, like her hair. But I do remember over her right ear, there was a big slit. Uh, I don't know, it must have been six inches. And you could see down into her brain where she had been hit, like, you know.
0: This wasn't the first murder scene Detective Murray had come across. In some ways, he'd become used to them. But there was something about Rachel's body and the extremity of the mess around her that stood out to him.
1: So I noticed that and I looked and she was in a terrible state. She was viciously attacked. As I always say, a scene always talks to you. You just have to listen. And... I stood there and looked and listened and took in what I could see, what it was saying to me. And I could see blood on the wall and blood on the ceiling, which is evident of something being swung with the blood on it. And um, But the interesting point that I noticed, it became very important in that uh, the blood splattering on the walls mm. had dried and there was other blood splattering on top of it.
0: Pat deducted Rachel had been bludgeoned over the head with a blunt object. The two different splatterings told him that Rachel's attacker had returned after the initial attack and hit her again. I
1: made my way outside then after viewing what I viewed and I know the superintendent was standing out there and I took a minute just to take a deep breath and have a look around and I could hear fire machinery in the distance and the birds singing and like just the normal country life and uh, Well, he says, what did you see in there? Well, I said, I saw two things. And he says, what was that? I says, firstly, it's not a burglary anyway. Correct, he said. Now, the superintendent was Tom Gallagher, and he was a very experienced detective inspector in his day, and then was promoted superintendent. So he was a man with a lot of experience. So, yeah, he says, and he says, what else did you see? Well, I said, whoever killed this woman hated her, because I said there was a viciousness about the assault. He says, correct, he said. Go out and talk to the husband there, he's out of the front gate. <laughs> he was
2: a bit odd now with interaction and stuff he was never very good at you know talking to adults I just thought he was kind of shy it was easier playing with the kids than playing with you know talking to adults um, he wasn't great at looking you in the eye or rant, and he just I just thought it was part of his makeup
1: I went out and my first impression of Joe he was 6 foot 4 a big guy like well built you know fine looking man like you know and uh, I went over to him and I shook hands with him and I told him who I was. And I told him that uh, I, we, we'd be investigating this and we will get to the truth and we get to the bottom of it. All right, right, he said, Grand. you know, he was calm enough like he wasn't down on his hands and knees crying his eyes out or shouting who did this or any of that type of carry-on.
0: Joe was keen to get back into the house. He'd left his jacket back inside in the sitting room. I told him, you know, no way you're going back in there, you can't, I've seen this place out. And uh, that was it, he,
1: he mentioned that he was in there and he moved a box near the body. And uh, he, sorry that he disturbed the scene or
0: that. This wasn't anything that necessarily alarmed Pat. It was something he'd seen before in his career. A loved one is dead the last thing on someone's mind is respecting the crime scene protocol. Pat told Joe he would need his phone number and needed to speak to him later on that day. So he
1: gave me a phone number, which I believed was his, but actually it was Rachel's phone number he gave me. And that was strange to me, you know. And, uh, but anyway, look, at uh, I told him, specifically told him, I said, uh, don't talk to the media. Let us do our business
0: and you know don't talk to the media. For Paul many parts of that day remain vivid.
2: I, I don't know why that stuck with me at that moment but I just thought it was so odd. He didn't get up and talk to us around and he just sat there and I was look, shocked blah 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 maybe but um, I just felt like my mother was not in a good place and then my dad got love him kind of went into shock, and he was shaking and stuff, and um, Joe just never moved. Um, It's just something that stuck out to me.
1: I found it strange at the time that he was there standing on the road on his own, a lonely figure, while all the Callalees were down at the ambulance. The ambulance people were putting the silver sheets around them, like, you know, to keep them warm, and just that they were in shock, and uh, was attending to them and Joe was standing up the road away from them, I would have expected that he would have been down with the Callalee family, engaging in a, in a grief and trying to explain things and what happened. And But he wasn't. He was standing on his own, like as if, you know, he didn't want to be down near them.
2: He said very little, but he listened intently. He wanted to know everybody's views and everybody's thoughts and what rumours, and, you know, he, he seemed... He didn't seem to offer Anton himself, he just seemed to, you know, light the candle and then we'd all speak and he'd listen and, and he you know, and he was intently and his brother as well, the two of them listened intently.
1: But look, that's just, it's not a crime to stand on your own outside your house, like, you know, but I just found it in the circumstances he should have been down or would like to have been with the Callaleys.
0: Later that evening a group of family and friends assembled in Rose and Jim's house in Whitehall Dublin As mourners often do they try and keep the conversation going trying to make some sense of the utterly senseless
2: The boys um like we kind of kept it together a bit at that stage like we you know there was a lot of people in the house teas coffees um and I remember like I chatting to my uncles now at the table and The theories are starting and, you know, why was it done? What did they rob? And, you know, would they have taken a credit card? Maybe they'll use it and loads of different bits and bobs, you know. But um, the only thing that stuck out with me that whole time that Joe didn't come back to our house was I just couldn't understand why he went to pick up the kids. You know, it was so unusual for Rachel to miss the kids to the point where... It just never happened before. Um, I put myself in that situation. I said, I, I would just go home. No school will throw kids out on the side of a street. So I would have gone home first, checked at home, make sure everything's okay, and then, you know, or even ring a parent or something. Where you pick up the kids.
0: That night, Pat and two other guardy went to Joe's mother's house in Dunleer, where Joe was staying. Joe's mother showed them into the sitting room and called for Joe, who arrived in his bare feet, having just finished up in the shower.
1: And he was sitting there as cool as a cucumber, really quite cool, like, you know. And the first question I asked him was, who killed Rachel? And can you think of any reason why she would have been killed like that? And he says, no. And this was the sort of the beginning of the the little nucleus of, of how things developed. I said to him, like, you know, had she any enemies? No, 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 she had no enemies and she was well liked and all that. And I said, Gran, I says, well, maybe she was having an affair, I said, and it's a disgruntled wife had someone do her in. Or, no, no, he said, neither of us were having affairs. And that's the skill of, it, they tell you, you have to listen, listen to what's been said. I thought it strange that here's a man Bringing himself into the answer, when I didn't ask about him, I asked about Rachel. And it stuck with me, and I sort of said to myself, "Mm," you know, I just said, maybe there's something here. All very unconscious, like, but conscious within myself.
0: Focused as ever, Pat took as many notes as he could, trying to fish out any details, no matter how small, that might help him with the case.
1: I said, give me a breakdown of your movements for the day. So he said, yeah, I got up
0: at... Life. Joe told Pat he leaves early each morning, which is why Rachel and him sleep in separate rooms going to bed. From there, Joe said he went to the gym in Clondalkin, where he met a friend and Viacom colleague, Derek Quarney. But he had made a pit stop in Finglas to pick up petrol along the way. Quarney and Joe sat in his car for twenty minutes, talking through the events of the day before heading in for a workout, sauna, and shower. From there, the pair headed to Bluebell Industrial Estate to the Viacom office.
1: They got in there around 7.30 a.m., like, you know. So he said, that's what I did. And then uh, he says, that morning, then about 8.30, myself and Derek were doing inspections in Broadstone. And I said, fine. I said, you're not leave together, no. I says, why wouldn't you go together? Why did not you travel together? Oh, he says, "Uh, we can claim travelling expenses for both cars. I said, surely you could claim the expenses even if you brought
0: one car, like, you know. Anyway, he says, that's his excuse. Joe said he was in Broadstone Depot until about half eleven and arrived back in Bluebell Industrial Estate at around twelve o'clock.
1: I said, who was in the depot with you? And he says, or who saw you in there? And he says, Derek Werner was with me. And I said, that's grand. He had accounted for all his time and his movements and that was it. So I asked him then, who do you think would have done this? And then he went on to say that he had sacked people from his work and had run-ins with people and this, that
0: and the other. Nothing here seemed like a concrete link for Pat although we would have to investigate each of these claims one by one. Again, Pat asked Joe to give him his phone number, as they would need to keep in close contact with him in the early days during the investigation. He gave me Rachel's number again. I said, hang on now, it says, that's Rachel's number you gave me. Oh,
1: I thought you were looking for Rachel. No, I said, he gave me Rachel's number earlier on as well when I asked. him, no, I said, I thought you asked for Rachel's. I said,
0: no, I asked for yours. What's your number? Joe gave Pat his own number this time around, but Pat wanted to know, did he have it on his person that day? According to Joe, he did, and Pat made a note of it. A note that in time would prove crucial to the investigation.
1: So I asked him again, I said, you having an affair or did you have an affair, Joe? And he was looking at me, staring at me, and he says, no, I didn't have an affair, you know? But I just knew by him by his eyes and I just knew more here like I said to him then I says we need to get your shoes I said that you were wearing today in the house when you came to the house and discovered Rachel because we have discovered footprints and we need to eliminate footprints from the scene Joe went upstairs to retrieve his shoes and he was gone for a good 10 minutes and I was saying to the lads Jesus is he gone to buy a pair of shoes or what but he came down and he wore a pair of boots and he says, these are the boots, these are the boots. So we put them in an evidence bag and that was it. And we said, thanks very much. And before we left, I looked him straight in the eye and moved real close to him. And I said, are you having an affair, Joe? And he looked at me and he stared at me like, you know. And he said, I did have an affair, but it's over now. And I said, who do you have an affair with? And he said, a girl by the name of Nikki Pelly. Things were rocky between myself and Rachel, but things are fine now. I thought to myself, this is a man has lied to me. He's lied to me twice about the affair. Now he's admitting that he had an affair and that it was over. And that uh, he didn't want his family to know. And I said, when was the last time you spoke with Nikki?" And then he said, oh, I spoke to her today at 12 o'clock.
0: Oh. Not one to wait around. Pat got in touch with Nikki that night, who confirmed they were having an affair. She was keen to play it down, though. It was just an affair. Just sex. Nothing else.
1: So here's a guy who has lied to me, you know. And then, like, over the couple of days, we had got his incoming and outgoing calls to his phone, which was very evident, because we established Nikki's phone number from herself.
0: Pat could see that the pair were talking at five forty-five that morning, hours before Rachel's body would be discovered. So what were they talking for for twenty-seven minutes? Like you know,
1: there was an, a text from Joe to her, and then there was another phone call from Joe to her that lasted another twenty-five minutes or something like that. You know, later on. So here's a guy who again has light was. I was thinking you can't believe this guy. He's telling lies. and why is he telling lies? If he was having an affair, why didn't he come out initially and says, yes, I'm in a relationship with someone else? And myself and Rachel were discussing going our own ways. But no, he was covering it up. Why would you cover something up? It was a motive, like, you know.
0: Next time on The Making of a Detective.
2: I'd love to say I, I totally had it sus from day one. Like you just don't want to believe it's him so you really do give him an awful lot of leeway at the early days like it's just like there was two young kids involved their mother's dead you just hope that god it's not their father and it was just a random act of madness by somebody and that they'll go on and live whatever sort of normality they'd have together
0: the Making of a Detective, The Cases of Pat Murray was brought to you by The Irish Sun. This series is hosted and produced by me, Ian Doyle. For more information on the life and career of Pat Murray, check out his 2019 book, The Making of a Detective by Penguin Books.